discussion uh, about what sin is, studying the topics. We had asked some very important questions that probably all of us have, have asked ourselves uh, when it comes to discussing sin, when it comes to discussing sin there in the Garden of Eden and everything. Uh, but I want to begin tonight by reading verse number 1 uh, through 6. And tonight we're going to be beginning the, the section in your booklet, if you have it, uh, that's going to be the temptation of Eve, starting in verse number 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, and your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Here we find, as we've been talking about, the, the fall of man. It begins here, ultimately, though, uh, while Eve would be the first to, to sin, it was Adam who was our our federal head who, by the very moment that he disobeys God, that each and every one of us are now born with a sinful nature and a sin-cursed world with sin-cursed bodies, and everything is going to go from good in the garden to then bad and to worse. And here now we find ourselves talking about things in the world happening now, and we go, how much more, how much more? Well, I believe what the Bible tells us is very clear, that there is more and worse things to even come some of which we may have to live through, some of which we may have to endure. Uh, we're not promised that we won't have to face tribulations, persecutions, and things. But what's the real reason why we even have to see these things? It's because of this very moment in the garden. I want to begin tonight, though, as we begin to look at this first portion of the temptation of Eve at identifying the serpent here. Uh, all of us would probably know at the very uh, basic of answers that this serpent here is being described as, as that of of Satan. Uh, and so let, let's look here. He says, first of all, that now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The identity of the serpent. Now, this is important for us to know because what this does is this does not show that, that God has an equal rival. Rather, what this does is it shows that a creature of which God had made, as we're going to see, who rebelled against him is now uh, made and, and given to be the, the prince and power of the air, who now goes about as a thief to steal, kill, and destroy, seeking whom he may devour. And this is what Satan will do. As we talked about last week, what God means for good, Satan will then use for evil. Uh, everything that God does on this side, right, we see the anti over here, right? Where we have Christ, what does Satan use? Antichrist. Okay, there you go. Good job, class. All right, we'll get we'll get there. Right, right. We talk about this stuff, especially with the end times and things, uh, the Antichrist. So everything that everything that Jesus has done, everything that God has ever done and ever stood for and ever promoted and and done, uh, Satan goes and, and seeks to undermine it, and, and as well to set up his own opposite kingdom. Right, and so if 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 God's north, Satan wants to be south. Okay, you see, you see the see how that goes. Total polar opposite. And total rebellion. Because truly, as we talked about with dealing with sin, sin at its very root, if we were to really understand this, sin itself is anti-Christ. Sin itself is anti-God. It goes against not just um, His law, but it goes against His character. It goes against His will. It goes against everything that He is. Right? It, it, it's because He is King, it is 
a total disregard for his kingship, for his lordship, for his authority over our lives. Uh, and so this is why this chapter and these few verses that we're studying and, and beginning to do so in, in quite some depth, it is so important for us to understand the world in which we live today. Right? How do we get to where we are today? Genesis chapter 3. Right? But then as well, how did we get to where we are today being saved? Genesis chapter 3. Okay? And so we're going to see that as we move along here. First of all, the identity of the serpent here, it says that, as one commentator puts it, the text here does not by itself alone clearly identify the serpent as Satan. But the rest of the Bible makes it clear that Satan is appearing as a serpent. In Ezekiel 28, 13-19 tells us that Satan was in Eden. Many uh, other passages associate a serpent or snake-like creature with Satan, such as Job 26, 13 and Isaiah 51, 9. Revelation 12, 9 and chapter 20, verse 2 speak of the dragon that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. Now, the devil goes by many names, right? When you and I think about the devil or, or Satan, right? It, normally those two names are, the, I guess, the most popular, if you will. But when we think, think of such, many of us get the idea of Tom and Jerry cartoon sort of thing where we've got the, the good angel on this side, then the, the bad one on this side. It's got the red skin and the, the you know, horns and the tail and the pitchfork, that whole thing. Well, how does Satan come here? He comes as this serpent, and there seems to be, according to this account, we don't find any fear from Adam or Eve in this. And why don't we have fear? Well, there's no sin. Right? Sin brings about fear into this from the creation. Everything was good. It's a perfect place. They see the serpent, it's no big deal. Right? Remember, it's Adam who had named everything to begin with. So we see that, that, that what Satan does is he takes what God had meant for good, changes things, and he moves things of which God had desired to be beautiful and to be great and pure and set apart. Satan then comes and brings about this, this smudge. Satan is also described in the Bible as coming as a as sort of angel of light. Notice that when you go to sin, it seems like a really good idea at that time, right? Notice when the devil whispers the lies, it seems pretty true at the time, doesn't it? Very convincing. Same thing that we find here in Genesis 3. We know so much about his operation from this very, this very uh, few six verses because he has not changed his tactics. It's the very same. The, the only difference is he's got you know, about 6,000 plus years of, of doing it to people. He'll continue to do so. Now here then, there's another commentator that deals with this, and he says, The fall of man was affected by the seductions of a serpent. That it was a real serpent is evident from the plain and artless style of the history and from the many allusions made to it in the New Testament. I want to pause there. It's very important. There are countless people today who teach in seminaries and Bible colleges and churches who would say that the first 11 chapters at least of Genesis are just allegory or sort of this... Um, this sort of big epic poem, right? That it's not a literal tale, a literal account. Jesus himself and all of the New Testament writers discuss in great detail and um, quote this account and the whole book of Genesis and the whole account of the, the first five books of the Bible as if they were real. Why? Because they are real, right? Either this is real or everything else that has taken place in all of human history is just worthless and pointless, right? This, this is certainly real. So this has to be a literal serpent. It's got to be a literal Eve, a literal Adam, a literal tree, and a literal garden, and a literal paradise of God. 
Because a literal God has made and created these things. If not, then why in the world would Jesus have to die? Why would you and I even be here? Right? How about this? We go even further down the line. If Jesus merely dies but does not resurrect, why would we be here? Right? So we see the importance. We must take God's Word absolutely seriously. And so we have got to take this incredibly literal. This is not an allegory. This is not a bedtime story. This is the account that God has revealed and given to us so that we might know how did sin come about here why are we born sinners? And what's the answer to our sin? And all of this is going to be found in this, in this chapter. Uh, but here, this commentator continues. He says, But the material serpent was the instrument or tool of a higher agent, Satan or the devil, to whom the sacred writers apply from this incident the reproachful name of the dragon, the old serpent, Revelation 20, verse 2. Though Moses makes no mention of this wicked spirit, giving only the history of the visible world, yet in the fuller discoveries of the gospel it is distinctly uh, it intimated that Satan was the author of the plot. Now you can go, and I put those, those verses in that quote for you, so you can go back and look at those verses and see how this is pointing back that clearly this is referencing Satan who it, it perhaps in this sort of idea, Satan himself is not necessarily, excuse me, Satan himself is not necessarily a serpent, but is ascribed or described as one. And here in the garden, what we find is more than likely, at least in my view, and I might be wrong, and that's okay, we'll find out one day where we might not. Nevertheless, I, I typically believe here that this is a literal serpent of which is a typical animal that Adam and Eve have seen, possibly even interacted with. But at this point in time, the, the devil is able to sort of give an animation to it in the sense that we find talking animals. Y'all know there are talking animals in the Bible, right? Yes, Balaam's donkey, right? Right? So this is not some sort of just Disney-only sort of thing, okay? God has used a tremendous amount of, of things that to you and I in our minds, we go, how in the world is that even possible? Well, we're dealing with the supernatural. We're dealing with uh, the, the spiritual realm. We're dealing with a, a God who is God, and His ways are not our ways. If you want to tell me why God will use a donkey to uh, do the things that He does, if you would ask me why God allows and places this garden, the whole I don't have all the answers for that, nor do I think can we. Nevertheless, we have God's Word, and we trust God's Word because we trust God because He is trustworthy. Now we look at this. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, and we see some more about this serpent here. If we're talking and referencing now Satan, what we find that the serpent here, we might ask, why did God allow the serpent? We talked about this before last week. Well, remember, God can take the serpent and ultimately use for good. What the devil means, the serpent for evil, God will ultimately use for good to demonstrate his power through Christ, that Jesus will come, and as is promised in Genesis 3.15, and will crush the head of the serpent. And so here, this whole line is going to be developed throughout all the rest of the Bible, where there's going to be those who are of the serpent, or those who are lost or unbelieving or rebellious, and then those who are of the seed uh, of, of faith, those who are trusting in the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And see, we find that from the very beginning, Satan's goal from this time, from the time of his own fall even, has been to see that the rest of God's creation would rebel and do the same. Notice that when the devil fell, he didn't just go solo, did he? Right? The Bible describes it over in Revelation that a third come along with him. And so we look at this. It's kind of been said, um, 
that today in the world, it seems that the devil has more in his army, right? In the sense that there's much more lost people or people who do not know Christ than there are those who are truly saved. Yet in the angelic world, right, it, it's, it's totally flip-flopped here, right? And so what we find, though, is Satan is always desired to not just be content that he himself is demised or, or will face judgment, but that he would bring about as many as possible along with him. Sin always brings more than just the one, right? Think about this even with our own sin. Sin does not just have the one consequence on us, but sin affects a great deal of things. It affects not just one part of our life, but all of our life. Notice that if you begin your morning full of sin or bitterness or cursings or or whatever your sin is in that morning, notice how it's not just going to affect your bad morning, right? It's going to affect your day, right? And if you allow that day, it can affect the rest and so on and so forth. Satan acts as, as like a, a virus throughout all of creation to stir up and to cause rebellion against God. Now, this is curious because as Ryrie, I give to you here in this next quote, Ryrie says, sin is found in Satan, yet he was created perfect. Have we ever thought about that? First of all, this asks the question, when was Satan created? Sometime before now, Okay. It's sometimes, to be honest with you, that's the, that's the answer that we have. Clearly sometime before the fall of man. And so it, it is typically believed that uh, we understand this, all right? Whether, uh, we don't know what day Adam, uh, we don't know, excuse me, we don't know what day Eve was made on, right? We don't know what day they, or how long it took for them to, to have the fall, right? They might have been there a day together, right? They had a perfect marriage for a day, the next day, boom, right? They, they, they fall. It might have been a year, it might have been, we don't know. We do know that it did not probably take too long. Where man has the ability to sin, man will sin. And so we look at this, we go, well, if Satan was created in this sort of perfect environment, right? Remember, what was he? An angel. Where were the angels before the earth is created? Before God, right? They're being able to to praise God in his presence, the, the whole nine yards, this sort of innumerable host of angelic beings of which God created, so, how in the world can he fall? You see, we have to understand that every created being is just that, a created being. Right? We're not self-existent. Though the angels are in the spiritual realm and are spiritual creatures, they are still yet creatures. They do not exist all on their own. God created them. And so with God's created order and with God's created decree, there comes as well the permissive will of God that allows His creation to either continue to stay in the state of which they were designed to and should stay in and should desire themselves, which is to obey God and enjoy Him, right? Because what does obedience bring? Throughout the Old Testament, we find that with Israel specifically, obedience brought blessing, okay? So if Satan... And the angels continue to obey, then what happens? They continue to enjoy God. What about Adam here in the garden? You ever wondered what would happen if Adam in Genesis 3 here doesn't eat? Well, he continues to obey God and enjoy God. That was the whole premise and the whole purpose of Adam's creation in Genesis chapter 2 to keep the garden free from impurities and to be able to simply obey God by faith and enjoy God through faith. So, in this, though, God permits and allows 
this to come forth. And ultimately what we find is that throughout the rest of the Bible, and throughout all of human history, that though sin would be allowed, though the fall would be allowed, both Satan and of mankind, which would then thrust all of human, uh, every human ever into, into this sinful condition that God allows so to demonstrate and to give grace to redeem sinful man. That, right, think grace isn't grace because we were good and stayed good or there was anything good about us, but grace is grace because we were bad, had rebelled against him, and therefore he still came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's grace. But then as well, it demonstrates his glory. That, that, that as he reveals his grace, he as well demonstrates his glory. As he um, gives us his grace and we understand his grace, we then in turn are able to glorify him by knowing Him and making Him known, as Adam was meant to do in Genesis 2. The first audience that Adam was meant to do that very thing with was his own wife. And what we find here is either he was a bad preacher or she was a bad listener. But I think there's a whole lot of both going on. We're going to see that as we, as we go forward here. But let's look here at the sort of inspection of the serpent. Right Here, he says that more subtle than any beast... Of the field. Now, whether the serpent and exactly what this thing looks like, how big, how small, the colors, it's it's unknown. How many of y'all like snakes? All right, let's try this this way. How many of y'all don't like snakes? Okay, all right. <laughs> hey, put the snakes away. Don't bring them in. <laughs> just just kidding, right? Think about this. Most of us have a, this sort of fear of them, right? We don't like them. There's the sayings. The only good snake is a, okay, that was really, that's probably too quick, okay? You see, someone's killed, someone's killed too many snakes in their life, right? You think about this, though. Snakes, even still, even if you don't like them, they still design and have a purpose, don't they? Right? <laughs> okay. Well, Miss Llewellyn, the scientist, says otherwise, okay? <laughs> we'll, we'll let you have that debate. But you think about this. Even still, whether you like them or not, Right? They have, have, their, have their abilities. But notice that you have another phrase about snakes that I, that I heard a lot growing up. If it was a snake, it would have bit you. Right? M- meaning mostly, if, especially for us men, when you're looking for something and you can't find it, but it's right there. Why? Because here we see the, certain, the serpent is, is subtle. The idea here of subtle in this word is to be cunning, to be clever, and crafty, right? And we're not talking crafty like Hobby Lobby. We're talking about crafty like manipulative and able to bring about uh, the demise of others through deceit and deception and, and through lies. It is Satan who is called the father of lies. We see this. So he's subtle. He's cunning. He's clever. He has wit beyond our wit. This is why we need the armor of God and not the armor of try real hard, do real good, right? Be strong on your own accord. We need to uh, depend uh, and rely upon the strength that is in the Lord, the power of His might, not in our own. Because a Satan, like that snake that you go, how did this thing get into my garage or my basement or my house or my wherever, right? How did it get in here? Doors are locked, the whole thing, windows closed. How did it get in here? Well, Finds a way. You think about this now spiritually. Even before we get into the fall of Adam and Eve here in our own personal lives, Satan's very crafty, isn't he? Very cunning. Very, 
very clever with the way he goes about things. He's a smart creature. He's observed mankind for a very long time and sees that we fall the same way that Adam and Eve fell. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're going to see that later on in verse number 6. But here as well, the word subtle in the rest of the Old Testament. Remember, Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Alright? And so, this is important here because this helps to also tell us how this word is used. But this word translated in other parts of the Old Testament is used to describe the prudent man and Proverbs to show the exercise of wisdom in one's life. Furthermore, uh, one commentator puts it this way, serpents are proverbial for wisdom, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. But these reptiles were at first probably far superior in beauty as well as in um, sagacity to, that, uh, to what they were in the present state, meaning the idea is that they probably looked a whole lot better. Can you imagine this? Not just snakes here we're talking about. We're talking about dinosaurs, bears, leopards, and dogs, and horses, and cats. Everything would have been better. Why would have everything been better? There's no sin. And this is why Adam and Eve, they're better. This is why one day, as the garden is pointing to the one day of being in eternity with our Lord, the sort of return back to a garden-like state, if you will, or at least to a glorified state, it's going to be better, isn't it, right? My body's not going to get worse on this earth, it will, but in heaven, better. So for them, there's no sin here. It's a perfect state, perfect place. Here, this sort of idea, this wisdom, this crafty thing has come. And now using his subtlety, his craftiness, he's seeking to devour these people. He's seeking to lead them into the same rebellion of which he found himself in. To puff them up with pride. To get them to doubt God as the way in which he did. To where then he would get them, Adam and Eve, and all of humanity to have their own heart's desire to be that they would be God and not God be God. Because if we really understand sin as we've been saying the past few weeks, when we say yes to sin, we are saying that God's law does not apply or that God's will does not apply, that God's rule does not apply, and that the only thing that does is what I want, which therefore makes not only me an idolater, but it makes me the idol of my own heart. It makes me the, the king upon my own little heart's throne. And these things should never be. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 3 tells us, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And furthermore, we find that Satan in his craftiness seeks to corrupt what is referred to in 1 Peter uh, 3, 7 as... Uh, the weaker vessel. Uh, I want to read this for you here just so that we don't think I'm making nothing up. All right, don't want none of that. Uh, you can turn with me if you'd like to. You can see it for yourself. I don't hear pages turning. <laughs> now, First Peter chapter, uh, chapter um, 3 here, verse 7 says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together the grace of life, that your prayers may... Be not hindered. Now, remember, we've talked about this. It's not saying inferior, okay? Saying weaker. And this is in the sense of which Adam is to be the head, Adam is to be the, the strong bone or the backbone of this family, of Adam and Eve in this marriage. It is Adam who is supposed to lead Eve, not Eve to lead Adam. It is supposed to be Adam who does the vocalization and their relationship to tell the serpent, no, we don't eat of that tree. But instead, what we find is, 
Eve's going to do the talking, right? So we find that the roles get reversed and flip-flopped here, and we'll get more into that on another night. But Satan comes to this weaker vessel of Eve in order to get to the main prize, which is Adam, the federal head. Now remember here, Eve sins, and there's plenty of people who say, well, Eve sinned first. Okay. She ate first, sure. But who did it? Who affected the rest of us? Was it Eve or was it Adam? Adam. How do we know? Because the whole rest of the Bible says it was by one man sin entered in the world and death by sin. So therefore all have sinned and all will die. And that we have this first Adam as then the New Testament talks about that there's the second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15. The second Adam being Christ who came and instead of disobeying as the first Adam did, he obeyed. And, and therefore, and his obedience was unto death, even the death of the cross, what Philippians 2 tells us, that, that he died for us, that he brought life. Second Adam, Christ, he brings life. The first Adam brings sin, death, separation, whereas Jesus, the second and better Adam, brings about a restoration of the things that the first Adam destroyed. So Adam brings destruction. Jesus brings life. But notice this, though, that Satan does this for a reason. And I believe that this sets us up to where we are today. Satan desires to destroy the roles of man and woman, husband and wife. But even a little bit further, Satan desires to destroy the home. The home is which our whole society is built upon. Every aspect of our society. Uh, from the very first settlers to come, uh, we, we find the home. The family unit. And, and Satan desires to destroy such for a reason. Because as, as we've talked about, as goes the home, as goes the church, as goes the church, goes the community, as goes the community, goes the country, so on and so forth. We see the bigger picture. But it starts off with the home. But even deeper than that, as goes your heart, goes your home. The husbands, as goes your heart, goes how you will love and lead your wives and your children. Wives, vice versa, same thing. Right? We see that. And so we must take this individual responsibility because there, even though we see all this, how God is not surprised by any of the sin that comes about, He's not surprised by Satan, He's not surprised by Adam and Eve, He's not surprised by you and me, yet we have the same responsibility that Adam did to know God and what He has said and to simply say yes by faith and obey Him. Right, but it's sin that causes us to not, it's our, our, our desire for such. Here, this first temptation comes. In verse number one, and he said unto the woman, he doesn't speak to Adam, he says to the woman, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. This is Satan's first temptation here. The serpent calls God, and this is important here. The serpent calls God by the name Elohim alone. Right? And the woman does the same. In this more general and indefinite name, the personality of the living God is obscured. To attain his end, the tempter felt it necessary to change the living personal God into a merely general Newman divinium and to exaggerate the prohibition in the hope of exciting the woman's mind, partly distrust of God himself and partly of a doubt as to trust the truth of his word. So here, here's what's important here. Though Notice here in verse number 3. What does Satan say? Hath God said? Now who is talking in Genesis chapter 2? Well, who's referencing 
Notice in Genesis chapter 2, we find the Lord God, 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 the Lord God. What's the difference? Lord God, God. You say, well, isn't Satan saying the same thing? Well, no, not by a long shot. He's using the generic word for God, Elohim, which later on even goes to translate in other parts um, of the Hebrew, could also be translated as gods or little gods, things like that, that was even associated for the pagan gods of the Canaanites. Now, this is important because, sure, it's translated as the word God, okay? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. However, the issue here is that what we have just found is a whole chapter that uses the Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. Because the, the two, while reference the same God here, one is sort of this title that is generic and expressive that he is God. The other one, Lord, is that he is the sovereign ruler who has authority over all of his creation. Okay? So Satan is minimizing here God's rule and authority. That's what he does. Right? Satan cannot deny that God's God. Y'all remember in Jesus' ministry when Jesus shows up on the scene and there's someone who's possessed and the demons cry out, what have we to do with thee, Jesus the son of, son of God, Son of Nazareth, you know, all this whole thing, right? They're like, leave us alone, right? We know who you are. Why? The Bible tells us even that the demons know and fear and tremble. Satan knows that God is God. But here, as he goes to talk and to deceive with his subtlety, what does he do? Instead of saying, Lord God, he says, well, didn't God, God say this? He is minimizing God's rule and authority. And notice that in Genesis 2, as God is creating and revealing himself to man, right, to Adam there in Genesis 2, the phrase Lord God is only is used to describe him. Satan saying God is recognizing God as God, but not as Lord, which is truly the very root of sin itself. And so if we think about this, Satan is not denying that God is God, but he's saying that God is not Lord. He's saying that God is not the ruler. He's saying that God, and just simply by saying, did God say, or did God really say, what he's saying is that, well, God might have said that, but, I mean, who is he to tell you what to do? Right? He's saying to Adam and Eve here, he's saying, you have your free will. Right? What's God got to make up that law for? And this is what he's really going to be getting to. Is God really all that good if he's given you all this other stuff, but he's not going to give you one more thing? I mean, how good could he really be? What, what is he really withholding from you? What is he really holding back from you in that tree? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? With our own sin. Right? It's not that bad. Right? You know, God would want you to be happy. All these things. Satan and his subtlety. What he does first, before he gets anybody to reach up to a tree and to pluck some fruit and to eat of it, is he affects and attacks the mind. Satan attacks the mind and then the heart long before the hands get to moving and grabbing for fruit. I have this sort of down in a sort of little order here to help out. Wrong thinking, all right, produces wrong believing. Your heart, head, heart. Wrong thinking produces wrong believing, which then produces wrong living, the outward. Satan does not start with the outward. He starts with the inward. If he can get you to doubt God, God's goodness, God's character, God's word, God's law, God's rule, God's authority, all these things, 
got you. Right? The first step in every sin that you and I commit is not just the lust of our heart, but really the very first step of our sin when we say yes to sin, whether it's gossip, pride, uh, pornography, drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be, right? Whatever the sin, right? Regardless of how high or low you put it on your little spectrum, make yourself feel good, okay? The first thing that happens with your sin and my sin is that we doubt God's rule. If we understood and we went back, as soon as this begins to happen, we go, well, you know, I can make my own choices, right? I'm a big boy, right? I'm a big girl. I can do, I can do my own thing. But we never, normally don't say those words out loud, do we, right? Normally we, wouldn't, we would never say that, but really what our sin does is our sin says, long before we've ever done that sin, it begins to say, you can make your own choice. You can call your own shot. It questions God's rule over your life. What you and I unfortunately do in our cultural Christian life is that we say God has Sundays, right? But, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, he didn't have those. Now, he wants me there Sunday morning, right? That's when God's got me. Now, you all don't think that you're here on a Wednesday night. Praise God for it, right? It's a rest them heat. <laughs> I'm just kidding, right? Now, look, when we think about this, though, God does not just want a portion of your, your life. He doesn't just rule over one little aspect. He doesn't just rule over your church life. He doesn't just rule over your Bible reading time or your prayer time. Either God rules over all or he does not rule at all, and God rules over all. The issue, though, is not that God ceases to rule, but rather or not we obey and submit to his rule. So what we find at the heart of sin here in the garden and our own hearts is a submission to God's rule, to his lordship and to his law. Furthermore, it says then the tempter begins with suggestion rather than argument. The incredulous tone, so God has actually said, is both disturbing and flattering. It smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. The exaggeration, ye shall not eat of any tree, is a further and favorite device dangled before Eve. It will draw her into debate on her opponent's terms. If we need anything tonight in studying Genesis 3, if we need anything in studying any other chapter of the Bible, if we need anything at all in our Christian life or churches and pulpits and homes and our own hearts, it is that God's word is final. Right? There is no debate. There is no debate with God's word. God's word is God's word, right? Now, if you, you can open up the Bible, and if you find one little spot, right, it's been said before that if you have a verse in the Bible that you struggle with studying or struggle with believing, that's the one you need the most, okay? Because here's the thing, all of it. And it's either all or not at all. And so we have to treat this as all because God is God. and We are not. His word is absolutely true, and it must be. It is his words that are not just, by the way, you know how, how fractionary, like how small of a fraction just law is in the Bible? I mean, there's so much more. Everyone thinks that this is just 66 books of just big, thick of do's and don'ts. Anyone ever heard that? Well, the Bible's just a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? I've had that objection a million times. But it's not, is it? 
It is much more than that. It is not just do this, don't do that, and here's how to do this, or here's how not to do that. It is God breathing out His revelatory Word to say this is who I am, this is who you are, and this is how you may know me. Right? That, is, that is all Scripture. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is who you are. This is how others have responded. This is how you should respond. And here's how to know me. Follow. See, there should be no debate when Satan speaks. We must respond as Jesus did in the wilderness with Scripture alone. Scripture matters. Scripture is not just infallible and inerrant and inspired and preserved. Scripture is sufficient. Meaning, at the end of the day, what we need is the Bible. Matthew chapter 4 tells us this. In verse number 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment. This this passage is a whole other series on, on, in and of itself, but if we were to look at the actual Greek, if thou be the Son of God, it sounds very similar to Genesis, right? Did God really say, right? If you are the Son of God, that's how we read in the English, all right? The, the Greek here, and especially looking at the context, is less that, that Satan is saying, if you're the Son of God, he knows the Son of God, right? Remember, it is the Son of God who creates and is there upon the throne at long before Satan is even there and, and fallen and there trying to tempt Eve. He knows who's who. But the, the Greek here is the idea that since you are the Son of God, or because you are the Son of God, what he's trying to get Jesus to do in this passage is to call and to use his divinity and his authority over creation over people that is rightfully his, but what did Jesus come to do? He came to be the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied to die for our sins, not to come into rule and reign at this point. That day's coming. That's his second coming. So, and as well, contextually, when we see Matthew 4, what took place just before it? The baptism of Jesus, where God says in verse uh, number 17, it says, and a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Other accounts discuss in the Gospels about people are kind of looking around going, it sounds like thunderings and lightnings when this voice comes out of it, right? It's severe. They understand that something just took place when Jesus went in the water and come back out. So Satan is saying, because you're the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Why? Because Jesus could. We often think that Jesus was just a human here. He was God. If he wanted to take stones and turn it into a golden corral buffet, he could have done that. But he didn't. Right? He's fully God there. We must never forget so. But verse 4, he's, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, Once more, if thou be the Son of God, because you are the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written, now Satan comes, and he says, Okay, you want to play the it is written game? Well, it is written... He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. What does Satan do? He quotes Scripture. 
Absolutely. Does he quote it rightly? No. Satan knows the Bible sadly better than most Christians. Except because Satan knows it so well, he's able to take it, to twist it, and he wants to tell you that you can do the same thing. You cannot make the Bible say what you want it to say. The Bible says what it says. The Bible tells us that it is up to no private interpretation, meaning the idea of we have a lot of times in churches, and it's easy to do, and I think that the right heart is there. Don't get me wrong, okay? What often happens is we have Bible studies, right? We sit around, we read a verse, and we say, well, I think this, right? And then we hear the, well, what does yours say? Well, what do you think it means? Well, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? What do you think it means? I want you to know, tonight, I don't care what you think it means, nor do I want you to care what Pastor Joe thinks it means. What we need is what God says it is. Okay? That, that's the key. And so then we see, takes him up, and Jesus says in verse number 7, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I love how Jesus even quotes the one specifically there, not just thou shalt not tempt God, the Lord thy God, right? The same way that Adam and Eve should have gone, no, no, no. No, he's not just God, he's the Lord God, and he said not to eat of that tree. You go on. Not, to, not today, Satan. All right? They didn't do that. It says, and again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, showeth him all the kingdom of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, all these things will I give thee. If thou wilt fall down and worship me. Let's not forget the reason why Satan has any ounce of dominion on this world is because it was given. He has no authority on his own. He's a created being. He owns nothing. He created nothing. But yet for a time, he is able to rule as the prince and power of this heir to deceive the nations, to deceive the world. And he's doing quite the job, isn't he? But all of this is to bring about an antichrist. And we're watching things happen, have been now for, for a long time, to bring about this. One world government, one world religion, one political system that an antichrist will arise. And you say, hey, I got all the answers, guys. Follow me. And they'll go, okay, sure. Right? And you say, well, man, that's terrible. Remember, this has to happen. So that Christ has a second coming, squashes him, and sets up his kingdom on this earth where you and I, Joining us with Jesus get to rule and to reign, and part of our gifting of, of eternity and our reward is our roles to fulfill and to play in the kingdom, to serve our Lord perfectly and completely and, and purely. It must come to pass. But verse number 10 then says, Say Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And the devil leaveth him, and behold, the angels came and ministered unto him. I firmly believe this that if Adam and Eve would have taken the approach that Jesus did, probably would have been all right. If you and I would take the same approach that Jesus does, probably be all right. But, I'm talking about the preacher tonight, we don't know, I don't know, the Bible like I should. Now, this is not to beat us up, to kick our feet or our shins or anything like that. But if you want to fight the fight, you've got to know the words. If you want to be filled with the bread of God, the word of God, you've got to get in it. You've got to start chewing. And it takes much more than just coming a couple hours a week. It takes 
the daily study, the daily reading, the daily asking of the Holy Spirit to help and lead and to guide, praying for God to, to help you to be, obey Him, and trust Him, and all of these things. And so what we end off on tonight is, is this. Satan comes to Adam and Eve. He comes to her to deceive, to use his subtlety, to begin to cause them to doubt God and His Word. What we find when Jesus faced the temptation in the wilderness, a much more difficult and challenging temptation, mind you. Remember, he hadn't eaten or drank 40 days, 40 nights. 40 being out of judgment, testing, trial. You and I barely go 40 minutes, 40 hours. I mean, if we're going 40 hours, that's a long time, right? We're, we're eating something. We're finding something, right? Jesus there in his physical weakness, yet it's the spiritual strength of what you and I should be having, and that is by returning to the Word of God. So when Satan comes, and he does, and he will, when temptation comes, which it does, and it will, we must go back not to the trees, not not to anywhere that you and I might find strength or ideas, but go back to this is who God is, this is what God says, that seals it. So may that be our heart's challenge tonight and we'll continue studying this as we move forward next week and see her response let's pray father we come to you this night grateful for your goodness and faithfulness and lord while we see the fall of man in that chapter lord we also see the promise of your savior we thank you for the fact that while we sin and even though we were sinners that christ would die for us the ungodly or to reconcile us to redeem us and lord i pray that you would help us tonight to have a greater desire to know your word, not just for the sake of knowing it, not just for the sake of trying to be a better Christian or a better church member or whatever it might be, Lord, but to simply to be able to be better warriors for you, Lord. You've called us to be conquerors. You've called us to be warriors in your army. Help us to suit up, to put the, the battle armor on and to know the word of God, to know your word of which you've not just given us rules of do's and don'ts, but Lord, you've revealed yourself to us, Lord. So if we want to know you, help us, God, to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and to get in your word. God, so we might fight this good fight of faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us, lead us, guide us, direct us, and Lord, that we might be obedient to you in all things, and Lord, that we might glorify you in all things. Lord, we, we thank you for this time. Go with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.